Hello and welcome to This Study Shows. I'm Danielle George. And I'm Marianne O'Hotter. This is a podcast from Wiley Research in which we discover the people, ideas and stories that can help us improve our research communication. So far, we've looked at how we can make people care about what we do, where ideas come from, the words that we use and who we should be working with. And in this episode, we're asking the question, where do we go from here? There are so many places to go with our research that sometimes it can feel a bit daunting. Yeah, so we hope that by now you're feeling well-equipped with some great new ideas for sharing research. And this episode is about where we can take those skills, the practical collaborations we could be engaged with. So we're going to look at public engagement, science in government, and working with publishers. Hey, Danielle. Hi. The other day, I got to speak to Canada's Minister of Science and Sport, but ignore the sport because I didn't talk to her about that. I talked to her about science. Now, Kirsty Duncan used to be a medical geographer, and her work was involved in attempting to basically work out why the 1918 world flu pandemic happened and if there was some take-home that could help with us basically facing the pandemic that is about to hit us, Mm. probably. Um, And then she worked on the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and then she ran for office. So Kirsty was first appointed Minister of Science in 2015 with Justin Trudeau's Liberal Party when they were elected to power. My first question for her was, what is her government's attitude towards evidence-based policy? We are a government that is committed to science, research, evidence-based decision-making. So that's been a real priority for me. I'm a former scientist, a researcher for many years, and I really wanted to return science and research to their rightful place and that we would make evidence-based decision-making a hallmark of our government. Um, I'm at the cabinet table. It is my job to make sure that the science, the research, the evidence is brought to every discussion. I ensure the science, the evidence are at the table. So it's fair to say that she's pretty pro-evidence-based policy? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Evidence all the way. But it is sort of strange to imagine that any government wouldn't be pro-evidence. Except that, as Kirsty explained, it often comes down to a debate of ideology versus facts, and for some parties, science just isn't a priority. Kirsty wasn't happy with the way that the previous Conservative government had handled science, and this, in fact, is what had inspired her to join politics in the first place. I left the university 11 years ago. It was a very hard decision to leave. I loved my research, and I loved teaching. I decided to to run for elected office. Um, When I was in opposition, I saw journals, Nature, reporting that Canadian scientists were being muzzled, and I fought against it. And we had our researchers protesting the death of evidence on Parliament Hill under the Conservative government. If you can imagine thousands of researchers out on Parliament Hill because they really felt it was an end to evidence-based decision-making. 
Yes, yeah, so this was in 2012. 2,000 scientists marched in Ottawa and staged a mock funeral for the death of evidence. Wow, okay. What's interesting is that the Conservative government in charge at the time had actually increased spending on science and technology every year since it took power. But nonetheless, people from the scientific community felt that the government was suppressing scientific data that would challenge what were perceived to be pro-industry, anti-environment policies. So it was kind of the muzzling of science and the silencing of science and potentially the, the kind of conflict in terms of what areas were being funded and which were being kind of starved. And that's something that Kirsty wanted to tackle straight away when she arrived in office. So on day one of our government. We reinstated the long-form census. Why? Because we need the evidence to make good decisions. On day two, we unmuzzled our scientists. It's one thing to say, it's another thing to put in a new communications policy. For um, myself and then um, the president of the Treasury Board to write to ministerial colleagues and say, this is the new policy. We expect our scientists to be speaking to the Canadian public and to the media. And, you know, the position we're taking in Canada is I want to strengthen the culture of curiosity in this country and really focus on evidence-based decision-making. The final thing I wanted to mention about um, the, the current approach to science in the Canadian government is that the role of the chief science advisor has been reinstated along with a network of science advisors throughout government departments. The thinking being that even if, you know, the political sea change happens and, and another party comes to power, science is fundamentally embedded into the, the machine of politics so that evidence-based policy has to remain part of the game. Mm. Um, of course, the final thing to say is that none of this comes cheap. We've made the largest investment in research in Canadian history. It's a $10 billion investment. It's the largest investment in both fundamental and applied research. And it's been a 25% increase to our granting council. The thing that stood out to me is the bit about the death of evidence. Um, and it's interesting to think that scientists' relationship with the media could be affected by the government's attitude to science. Yeah, and I don't think that's just in Canada, actually. It's great that she's been proactive in Canada, but I think that probably happens everywhere. Yeah, definitely. And I think fundamentally, again, it, for me, it comes back to the idea of people's awareness of the role of science in everyday life and, and the basic sort of literacy of understanding how science works as a process. As a scientist and engineer, I think it's really important to communicate via the media. But but I do know quite a lot of people who are worried about it mm. because they're worried that they don't have control over their research anymore. So especially with something like traditional media, you know, the, the likes of sort of newspapers or, or television or radio or something, that's sort of one way. So once a story is taken up by the media, then the scientist doesn't feel like they're in control of it anymore. And and some people are worried about, I guess it goes back to misinformation. They're worried that their their research will be misconstrued some way by mm. the media. So there's a sort of a, a fear, I think, that we need to get over as well. What do you think the advice would be for researchers who are kind of feeling that fear? 
I think you just have to try and embrace it. Um, and if there's if there is misinformation or your your research has been misconstrued in some way, then you have to find another avenue to to rebut uh, that that claim. Um, but don't stop doing it because that would be dreadful. And effectively anti-science. You yeah. let them win. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, can't do that. So the next thing I'd like to talk about is collaborating with publishers. This is a Wiley Research podcast, after all, so it'd be a shame not to take advantage of our connections and find out what publishers are up to when it comes to science communication. So what's your history with publishers? Yeah, so, I mean, publishing is a huge part of academic work, um, and it's such a big deal for a researcher personally, and then whatever institution the researcher is in, so, so it can for sure help with promotion and your career progression. Big deal. Yeah. So... Can you remember the time you had your first paper published? Yes, I can. Yes, I was a PhD student and um, so it was a big conference and then if your paper was good enough in the conference, you could then write more of it and get it published in, in the journal. Oh, what was the title? <laughs> oh, I don't actually know. Actually. You haven't got it tattooed on the inside of your I've arm. I've written so many papers since then. Oh, well, get I you. I cannot remember. No. <laughs> Oh, no, I feel bad. Like I should remember that. That's the, that's, the, that's the beauty of the dynamic nature of science. <laughs> She's moved on. She's like a shark. She's never still. <laughs> but I do remember it, and I remember it being being accepted, and it was like Christmases all come at once sort of thing. It was such a big deal for me. How do you celebrate in an engineering lab? You go to the pub. <laughs> Quite right. <laughs> Lager shandy for Danielle. She's done good. <laughs> So, <laughs> our representative from the publishing industry is this guy. My name is Jay Flynn, and I'm the chief product officer at John Wiley & Sons. That means I look after all of our journals, the online platforms and infrastructure that supports them, and I also look after our open access business here at Wiley. And the publishing industry is facing a lot of changes at the moment. We're now able to share huge amounts of information instantly across the globe now, aren't we? So so I was wondering where this puts academic publishers. Jay agrees, and he actually has some big ideas about the future of journal articles. A journal article is a 400-year-old-ish artifact that, even though we're disseminating online, it's primarily still in a PDF format, and it's still primarily fundamentally indistinguishable from, you know, an article from 50 years ago or 100 years ago in terms of what it, what it does. And building, building tools, and this is, you know, my, this is my sort of personal windmill that I'm sure I will tilt at for the rest of my career. Um, building tools for authors to write for the medium of the web as opposed to writing for a medium that is in in actual reality, a sort of print derivative artifact, um, I think is the next great thing for, for journal publishing. Um, I really do. I, I think for scholarly communications, forget journal publishing. Um, you know, we need to be um, really, really focused on how we can put tools into the hands of researchers to help them communicate the results better. So Marianne, my colleagues and I often talk about how academic journals are more for the people that drive our metrics. So so it feels very metric driven sometimes, like we've got to publish and they have to be in the right journals. 
because we need to progress in our careers, right? And we have something called the Research Evaluation Framework. And there is something similar in, in lots of different countries. And they use our, you know, how many, how many good papers we've published, how many citations we have and things like that. So I wanted to ask Jay what and who he thinks academic journals are for. Obviously, the research evaluation frameworks and the like um, are an important part of the university lead tables, and they play some role in the academic tenure and promotion process, although we're, we're seeing that change and widely welcomes that, right? We never uh, set out to have the quality of our journals um, measured by uh, a metric that a guy in Philadelphia invented in, you know, um, the 1980s. It's not our, it's not our um, fondest wish that that's how people judge um, our journals. And so um, from, from my perspective, uh, you know, I, while I think it's important to do things like uh, citation rates or age indices or things like that, um, what I'm really interested in is the social and human impact of the research that we publish. Well, I'm not dismissing the, the importance of evaluation frameworks and, and the importance of metrics, but that's a, that's a kind of a slippery slope, right? We saw yesterday in Nature uh, an article published about the hundreds of thousands of self-citations in the journal landscape, right? These are easily gameable, easily manipulable statistics. So what's he talking about there? Self-citations. So there's no official definition, I don't think, of self-citation. But, but basically, it's, it's if I publish a paper, I can refer to all the other papers that I've authored or co-authored, and then I can increase my own citation record. Oh, right. So you're not allowed to reference your own work at all? Well, yeah, you can, but it's some people are just taking it to the extremes in order to, uh, to almost like game it. So, so they're improving. Oh, their so they're cheating. Well, it's not cheating because it's it's sort of not illegal, if you like, but it's sort of frowned upon. It's sort of like not the not the done thing. So Wiley don't just want to concentrate on citations, self-citations. They're actually interested in the human impact of research. So they've begun this transition from a subscription service, which has a cost to it, to an open access so that anyone can access the research for free. And they've started this in Germany with a project called Deal. So Deal is a, a group that was formed to bring together the academic library community in Germany and the research community. What we've done together with our partners in DEAL is um, we've entered into a, an arrangement whereby any researcher who is active and working at a institution of higher education, any researcher there can publish their paper with Wiley uh, and it immediately becomes um, an open access article. In addition to that, all the institutions in Germany, and there are well over 700 of them um, that, that fit into these categories, um, can read the content published from around the world from, from other countries that, that Wiley delivers um, via the Wiley Online Library platform. So essentially, it's a, it's a publishing deal and a reading deal. And if your paper gets accepted in any Wiley journal, we will uh, publish it open access and you can read all the research outputs from from around the world if you're uh, sat at a German institution. 
So from my perspective as an academic, research transparency is really important to me because it's a a benchmark for writing up my research so that I can present and disseminate in in a very clear, explicit way. And I'm very open about the methods that I use. So I was interested to have the chance to talk to Jay about how important this is to publishers. One of the, the key ways that research can be impactful is if it can be reproduced. And if the methods, as you said, are clear, if the equipment that was used, if the, if the, the, the reagents in a chemistry lab or the, um, the, the mass spec machine uh, is documented and people understand what the, what the, what the approaches that were taken to do an experiment. We are, I think, pushing the limits of the traditional journal article as the best way to communicate results and to communicate in particular things like um, uh, methods. But that cuts up against this tension of competition amongst academics, right? So there's an interesting tension between how much data scientists want to expose for scrutiny and how much the funders want them to expose. And I don't necessarily know that it's the publisher's first role to adjudicate that tension. Um, But I do think it's our job to build tools to make the the paper a little bit more robust. We at Wiley, but in general in the industry, need to be focused on the tools that are going to allow content to be captured better, to be data to be captured better, and for people to have an overall, a much more meaningful experience with the research. Now, many people would assume that publishing houses like Wiley are a bit of an academic thing. Jay says that he wants to increase the social and human impact of research. How do they go about disseminating research outside the academic community? You know, across the board, it's really important for us to describe our um, our role in the, the ecosystem as trying to amplify the impact of research and of a researcher's work. I, I sort of think about it as, you know, it's it's our job, um, if you will, to to take care of this project once it's been handed over to us. I think the the first thing that we do is we spend a lot of time thinking about how we reach out to media. Um, with a lot of our society partners, of course, they want um, their journals, their brand, the research published in their journals to be publicized in the mainstream media. So we have a PR department and we write press releases and we um, do our best to try and you know help. Uh, especially articles that are really interesting uh, and kind of buzzy get a a wider hearing from a wider audience. So um, if it gets picked up on social media with something like Twitter or Facebook, if it goes viral on IFLS, which is, you know, I effing love science, which is a very popular Facebook page. Generally, if it has to do with Harry Potter or dinosaurs, that's, that's a guaranteed, uh, success story. But beyond that, um, these these projects can take years to bring to completion, massive data sets. And our job is to help uh, an author maximize the reach, readership, and impact of, of that research. And, we, you know, that obviously goes beyond, um, you know, the comparatively smaller sets of readers of, of most of our journals. So even what we might consider as the very serious and proper publishing organisations still rely on social media to increase reach. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? And I think it's because a lot is changing. And I think it's sort of great that publishers are willing to put research in those spaces for more people to discover. And the same is true of open access. 
Right, so on to the subject of public awareness. Do you think the public care about science? Yeah, I do actually. Yeah, I know I know it's sometimes it doesn't feel like they do, but but I do. I mean, just take any time there's something in in media, whatever sort of traditional or social media, you know, a probe has gone into space or it's gone outside of our solar system. Everybody yeah, talks about but it. But space is always sexy and exciting. Like Jay was saying that, you know, Harry Potter always get loads of hits. It must be a bit frustrating if you're like a researcher on slime mould or, I don't know, the ecological properties of concrete. No one cares, do they? But they do. I think they do. There's some great examples of some superb science communicators and their subject is concrete. Oh, fair enough. My husband was raving about a book about oranges the other day as well. See? Yeah. It's all about how you communicate it. It's almost like doesn't matter what the subject is. If you're great at communicating about it and you're passionate about it, then other people could be passionate about it too. Mm. And then the big question is, are people passionate about science as as a kind of living, breathing thing, a part of our society, a part of conversation, a part of how we as a society make decisions, better decisions. Let me tell you about one great example of a group of scientists who rallied to increase public awareness of science. So Saturday the 22nd of April 2017 was Earth Day. It was also the first anniversary of the signing of the Paris Agreement on Climate Change And it was the day that hundreds of thousands of people took to the streets to march for science. Over 600 marches were held all across the world. I got in touch with Valerie Aquino, who was one of the people responsible for organising this global movement. She was a PhD student at the time, and this is when she first came across the March for Science movement. I was sitting in a rented apartment in the deserts of New Mexico. I ended up stumbling into March for Science, which erupted uh, virally and quickly and globally, and it changed my whole entire life. (laughs) So the March for Science first originated after the 2017 Women's March, and Valerie got involved because she stumbled into a Facebook group and she immediately volunteered to get this fledgling march off the ground. And then right around that time as well was when this argument about um, Trump's inauguration crowd attendance was occurring and grabbing tons of public and media attention. And all that spotlight on what to me was clearly, (laughs) unreservedly, an empirically false observation asserted by an authorized spokesperson for the nation's highest office both terrified and motivated me in profound ways. (laughs) So most people will have heard of the the Women's March, um, sort of protesting the new president, Donald Trump. What was the point of the the March for Science? What What were scientists trying to say? The message of the inaugural March for Science in 2017, it was championing science for the common good. And it continues to champion science that serves more people in healthier and better ways. And the message of the inaugural March for Science immediately resonated with so many communities. And they came together online and, of course, on the streets um, in April on Earth Day 2017. It became the largest demonstration championing uh, scientific integrity and science conducted for the benefit of more people, um, the largest one in world history. 
What do you think it was that that caused all these different groups of people to to come together? What's the what was the sort of shared perceived threat, or what was it that made people go, okay, now I have to do something? Sure. Yeah. Well, one reason um, was similar to my initial reaction that I mentioned about hearing powerful leaders and their authorized representatives willfully lying to the public and doing so you know, increasingly and more brazenly and in more blatantly false ways. And so that went against, I think, a lot of people's sense of integrity and justice. And um, as scholars have mentioned over and over and over, it's demonstrated power of authoritarian and corrupt governments through time and space. So that's not just unique to the U.S. or or this current administration. That's one reason that resonated globally. Um, Yeah, I just read something the other month about how the majority of governments around the world today are majority authoritarian or authoritarian leaning. Um, So as a fan and defender of democratic ideals, um, that was a shared situation that compelled people to take more meaningful action. And then I think another reason, uh, an equally important reason that excited people to get involved is the was the and is the opportunity to create um, healthier and more resilient relationships and communications among scientific communities and the diverse publics that their work impacts. You know, there's no shortage of examples in our world history of grossly unethical experiments and decisions carried out on people who are unwilling and unknowing participants. And so there are also people who continue to defend such practices, quote unquote, in the name of science with a capital S, which frankly uses science as a cover for selfish or you know, at worst, nefarious motivations. So the work that March for Science leadership um, hopes to continue doing moving forward will be more explicitly naming and addressing these systemic problems in our shared civic spaces and within our scientific communities as well. That's a really interesting point. The public need to know about science, not just because it's interesting, but because many people need to understand the way it directly affects their lives. And Valerie was saying that she's learned a lot about public engagement with science whilst she's been on this journey in in terms of organising the March for Science. I wanted to know if she had any insights about what holds scientists back from communicating effectively with the public. You know, one of the things that I am heavily engaged in and passionate about is meaningful public engagement. I think we understand that you can't really get at meaningful engagement without without meaningful communication. And communicating (laughs) is notoriously difficult, I think, for us. So like, for example, in academia, uh, most information that I was trained to receive, absorb, and distribute was shared in college lecture halls and at conferences and in peer-reviewed publications. That was our training. And it has helped create niche academic communities, but I don't think it's done a lot of favors in breaking um, communication silos or barriers. Um, And so among most scientists and academics, as another example, participating on social media platforms might be considered inferior to participation in the most exclusive spaces, like publishing in, in journal articles or attending field-specific conferences that aren't necessarily accessible to the public. But, but yeah, we all also know that an accurately informed society is essential for democracy. So I'll tell you that publishing more paywalled articles is not the solution for that. 
In some ways, it's similar to what Jay from Wiley Research was saying. The journal article serves a purpose, but only for a a particular audience. And we, journalists and scientists, need to become more familiar with other ways of communicating our research so that other areas of the public can be engaged, can be reached with those messages. Valerie and the team have also managed to keep the momentum going, which I think is one of the greatest challenges with these these movements. Um, They've just announced that in the next year, they're going to build up satellite groups and local leaders so that they can organise and advocate year round. They're saying that we have to organise locally in order to have an impact globally. Wow, we've discussed some pretty big things in this episode. Yeah, from liberating your research from behind paywalls to mobilising thousands of citizens in the street. So it just remains for us to hear this week's additions to the Wiley Research Fictionary, where we collect all the strange made-up words that help us describe very specific things in the life of a scientist. This is what Jay Flynn had for us. So the word I've got is technap, and um, because I spend a lot of time in meetings of, of various types with, with folks across the globe. There's always this kind of five or ten minutes where you're waiting for the technology to catch up with and people are dialing in because they're a little bit late and can you see the slides and can everybody hear me? And I uh, I tend to call that my my sort of technology nap. You know, the meeting's going to start in five minutes. I got a time for a tech nap. And this is what Valerie wanted to contribute. The word I've got for the Wiley Fictionary is lumper. I came across this word in the field of physical anthropology, and it comes from observing how past scientists classified species in our history of human evolution based often on just very small and few skeleton fragments, and whether they determined those to indicate a new species. So colloquially, anthropology students identify people as lumpers or splitters, meaning they either tend to group things together or split them apart based on chosen characteristics. I describe myself as a lumper. Thanks so much for listening to This Study Shows. You can tweet us at WileyInResearch or email us at thisstudyshows at wiley.com. We'd love to hear from you. This study shows was presented by me, Marianne O'Hotter, and me, Danielle George. It's a Wise Butter production for Wiley Research. The producer was Maddie Hickish. The executive producer from Wise Buddha was Nick Minter, and the executive producer from Wiley Research was Samantha Green. Mm-hmm.